Thank you. That was very nice. Um, I asked him to leave the house lights up today because one of my pet peeves is that Christians don't know how to use their hard copy Bibles anymore. So those of you who actually brought one, pull it out. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. As you know, let me pray. That'll make you quiet. Lord, I feel really nervous. We've got a lot of energy in this room, and I'm so glad about that because these people love you. I ask you, though, to help us quiet our hearts right now and to hear your word. Help me to be a person who can hear from you while I'm talking at the same time and be able to express clearly what you want to say today. So we purposely put ourselves under your lordship right now. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, I also did not make slides uh, with the scripture on them because I've noticed North Central students having to use their table of contents to find things. I think we should be able to know our Bibles really well and stick our finger right where that chapter is going to be. So let's uh, try using hard copy Bibles a little bit more. We're in Acts 4. So Dr. Tennyson talked about the beginnings of the church yesterday, and we're kind of focusing on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the book of Acts. And I'm going to read from Acts 4, verse 32. So if you catch up with me, Acts 4, 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Doesn't this sound wonderful? And then there, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, or maybe it would be Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. That's what the apostles were also calling him. And who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and he kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it under your control? Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men got up and covered him and carried him out and buried him. 
And then there was about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me, did you sell the land for such and such a price? Kind of set her up there, didn't he? And she said, ah, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And not surprisingly, a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Whoa, what do you do with a scripture like that? This is not a nice story. Who is this God who strikes people dead? I was, uh, when I worked on my PhD, I was in Birmingham, England, and I was a member or on the, on the leadership team of the evening service at uh, St. Stephen's Anglican Church. I was on the preaching rota. That's what they call a rotation, a rota. I was on the rota. Um, and I had the assignment of preaching from chapter 5 of Acts. And I could have preached on the apostles' miraculous escape from prison or the tensions between them and the religious authorities. I looked at this passage and I thought, what does it mean? And I thought, okay, I'm going to grab the bull by the horns and try to figure out what's going on here. Now, you all should know from taking reading and interpreting that there are several immediate steps that you need to take. First of all, we need to recognize that we're reading a first century text with 21st century eyes. And we need to try to understand how they would have experienced this event. Second, we look at the context the train of events that lead up to it and that follow it, and we think about what the author intended to communicate by including this story. So here's a summary of that process. Obviously, it would be more detailed, but first of all, we have here the earliest moments of the church. Things are a little bit chaotic, and there's a lot of experimentation going on with what it means to live out of faith in Jesus the Messiah. The preceding texts coming up to this have showed us a series of narratives of God's power being revealed in God's people. We see the tongues of fire and the mighty wind. We see healings. We see power encounters with the religious authorities. They have boldness. And there's a growing understanding of what this filling with the Holy Spirit is. And then there's this powerful prayer meeting and then right before our verse, we get the second passage in Acts about how they were living out their faith in community and sharing everything. And as an expression of that, Luke tells us how Joseph Barnabas sold a field and brought the proceeds to share. Now, did this remind Luke of a less generous couple? So he, want, he intended to talk about Barnabas and then he remembered about Ananias and Sapphira? Or was he planning to describe them, because he had a message there, 
and he used what Barnabas had done as a way to set the stage. I think it's the latter. Immediately after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see more signs and miracles. We see crowds gathering and the fellowship grows, more and more people joining this new movement, and then another power encounter with the religious authorities. So there's kind of a a cycle going on here. So the context sandwiches our passage between accounts of extraordinary fellowship and of displays of God's power. And I would just as a side note point out that throughout church history, community of believers is the vessel that is used to reveal God to the world. Community. Not one guy out there, but uh, God's people living in community reveals him to the world. There's a few minor points to be made. Uh, First of all, Luke tells us twice about the fear caused by these two deaths. Verses 5 and 11 is about fear in the church. And verse 13 is about fear by the outsiders in response to the signs and wonders. Second, this is clearly an act of God and not manipulated by human hands, these two people falling down dead. And number three, for us liberated women, we have here uh, negative evidence, meaning it's evidence, but it's in a negative way, of God's view of women as equal. Because Sapphira was considered fully responsible before God for her actions in a society that might have expected her just to go along with her husband. No, God said, nope, you stand for yourself. What this is not about is that, it, uh, is a, is that it's a warning that God is going to kill you if you tell a lie. How many of us would be in this room right now if God killed people who tell lies? If you raise your hand, you're one of us. Right? It's not that. And it, that would be so against the gospel of grace and forgiveness in Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, another question to ask is, is this the only time something like this happens in the scripture? And then I would remind you of... Uh, 1 Samuel 6, that one I'll read. I'm not going to read them all. Uh, where Uzzah um, gets in trouble. Uh, 1 Samuel 6, starting in verse 4. So they brought uh, the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And they were all, you know, David and every the whole house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord with instruments and then they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, and Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David actually got mad at God for doing that, but um, it didn't seem like he was trying to do something good keeping the ark from falling? Or you'll remember 
um, when some guys, I think from Beth Shemesh uh, in 1 Samuel 6, uh, are, look into the Ark of the Covenant and they die. That reminds me of Indiana Jones, right? Where the Nazis look into the Ark of the Covenant and they laugh because it's, it's, there's just some dust in there and God melts their faces off, right? We've got the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 2 where a group of young men are mocking God's prophet and some bears come out of the woods and kill them. What kind of a God do we serve, right? In Acts 13, written by Luke, um, is Elimus, the magician who is trying to hinder Paul. And starting in verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, notice he has both names at the same time. That's not one of them, his pre-Christian name and the other is Christian name. That's nonsense. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon Elimus and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a while. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went around groping, seeking people who would lead him by the hand. Result, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Do these sort of things still happen today? I'm, we don't, we're not in a position uh, to say that for sure, but I have one story that I think, uh, I, I suspect, is a story of a punitive miracle, because that's what we're talking about here, a supernatural event that is, that is meant by God for a punishment. Um, I was the campus pastor of a ministry in Cologne, Germany. For I was there for nine years. I pastored this group for six and a half. And in Germany, all the schools have religion classes, either Catholic or Lutheran, or if you're atheist, you can go to a philosophy class. Um, and so these teachers have to be trained, and they're trained at the public universities. So I had in my ministry a number of students who were studying Lutheran theology in order to teach Lutheran uh, religion classes in the high schools. And they had a teacher whose last name was Kegel, and uh, Professor Kegel was uh, not only an atheist, but he was an anti-Christian, teaching re uh, religion classes. He... Um, when they would, uh, as good believers who wanted to teach God's word in, in classes, um, they would raise their hands and object to things he said, try to give answers to what he said, and he would just tear them apart. And he had a group of students who thought he was the bee's knees, and they, they, we called them the Kegel Club. And, um, and they would laugh at you know when the Christians tried to object to the things that he was saying in class, 
it was really hard on my students who were trying to pass his classes to have him so opposing them. And he was there the whole time that I was in Germany. I came back in 1996, that's a long time ago, to go to Fuller Seminary. Um, and I, after I got to Fuller, a couple months later, someone wrote to me and said, did you hear uh, Professor Kegel died? And he had uh, been diagnosed with cancer and died within a week. It went really fast. And now, I can't say this for sure. I only suspect. But I think to myself, after all these years of battering God's people and harming the next generation and misleading the students who liked him and believed that he was telling the truth, God just said, that's enough and took him. And that you could look at other things. You know, we had the time when the lightning struck the Lutheran church here in town, right? There's, there are things uh, right after they made a decision about uh, having homosexual pastors. So that lightning strike, it was an unpredicted storm. It just all of a sudden was there. You know, there's these things that you kind of go, oh, okay. Okay, so let's look at another scripture, and that's in Exodus 19 about Mount Sinai, because we're going to end in Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews is very interested in two different mountains. Exodus 19, starting in verse 16, this is a description of the presence of God. Exodus 19, 16. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sounds so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses, brave man, went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses. He just got up there, and God says, go down. Warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to stare, and many of them would perish. And also... Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, Oh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, and you said, set boundaries around the mountain and consecrate it. And, I mean, it, this is just the middle of a whole series of passages that are like this. God is not so soft and cozy as we often make him out to be. God's holiness is a dangerous thing. We're not dealing here 
in Ananias and Sapphira with an innocent mistake or even with a simple clumsiness with Uzzah or something, but with a deliberate transgression of the holiness of God. In some way, like Uzzah, like Elimus, Ananias and Sapphira had entered the presence of the holy, and the holy was in the holy of holies, right, in the temple, but by this point, it's in the community. God's presence is revealed in his people now, so in the community of God's people is the holy of holies. They entered the presence of the holy with intent to deceive or abuse or take advantage. It was disrespect of a knowing sort. It was scornful disbelief. And I want to take a little aside here and talk about the word belief because we use it very badly in English in our whole society. We tend to use the word belief to mean one of two things or both, either an intellectual assent, like I am convinced in my brain that there is a God. I believe in God. Or we use it like the word of faith people do. If I have enough faith, faith and belief, by the way, are the same word in the Greek. If I have enough faith, if I work it up and I pray for this person, they're going to get healed. And I just have to have enough faith. One is intellectual. The other is sort of emotional, I guess. Faith is neither, although it does contain those two things. Faith is relationship. Faith is surrender and trust. I give my life to God. That means I trust him. I surrender the lordship over my life. So they have come in with a scornful disbelief. They are not in relationship with God here. Now we can make a comparison to that with how God set up the natural world. You jump off a 10-story building, the results are pretty clear. You have the natural result of your action, right? You sleep around with multiple sex partners, you get diseases. You take drugs, you have flashbacks 20 years later. You play with fire, and the boundary waters burns down. Spit in the wind. I have a story that I read many, many years ago, and, and it just really struck me. It's about a mom uh, who, her, her two teenage sons, it says one spring day, her 16-year-old son, Cliff Jr., and 15-year-old son, Jimmy, were sanding their boat out on the beach, preparing it for the season. Suddenly, Donna heard a scream, Rushing outside, she found her two sons lying on the ground near the boat. Jimmy had gone into the water and returned dripping wet. And when he picked up the sander, he was electrocuted. Cliff knocked to the ground by the current when he tried to grab the tool away from his brother, recovered, but Jimmy died. Again, they, they came close to a power source without adequate protection. That's an indication of belief, 
belief in the power of the electricity, respect for it, right? You do that and you die in the natural world. Well, Ananias and Sapphira entered the holy presence of God, the midst of God's people, without protection born of belief and respect, with disdain, with mocking hearts. Uzzah thought that the Ark of the Covenant was like the pagan gods who had to be picked up and carried around. They couldn't take care of themselves. So he didn't believe that God could take care of the Ark. And he touched a power source without protection, without real belief. This should put the fear of God in us. And now let's look how the author of Hebrews deals with the mountains. We're going to be in Hebrews for the rest of the time here. Hebrews 10, verse 29. Oops. The author of Hebrews is very concerned about people who deny God. Um, and he says here, or she, how much severer punishment do you think a person will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then this statement, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But wait a minute. Moses did go up on that mountain. And he even brazenly asked to see the face of God. David, who was not a priest, went into the temple and ate the consecrated bread and gave it to his buddies. That's in Luke 6. All through the Bible, we see God taking pleasure when people argue with him when people make demands of him, when people draw close to his presence. What's the difference? It's relational. Jesus said to his followers, you are friends of God. That echoes David's description as a man after God's own heart, doesn't it? Was David perfect? He made terrible sins, but, he, but the relationship was there. Jesus said, we should call God Daddy. We are not only friends of God, but we're children of God, his kids. And then, and then Jesus did this most amazing thing and offered his true innocence as the final sacrifice for the human sin that would separate us from God. And the veil was torn in the temple and the way into the Holy of Holies was opened up. Now that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 12, where, starting in verse 18, where the author says, you haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. 
referring to Sinai, right? And he's going to describe Sinai here. And to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and the blast of the trumpet, and the sound of words, that the, so that the people begged that no further words should be spoken to them. And this horrible thing about even if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But that's not the mountain you have come to. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, community again, the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriads of angels and the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. How were they made perfect? By Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's the mountain that we are invited onto, Mount Zion. And as we move into worship now, let's hold this tension, right? An awareness, we don't take God for granted. We, we know who he is, a great and fearful and frightening God, who because of Jesus invites us into his presence, like Jesus drew the little children to him. And we're going to read one more passage from Hebrews as the musicians come to assist us in entering into worship. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. <laughs> 